folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city, on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan. And in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G, Double E S Emil dot Gorgies at Tokyo Realty dot JP. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right, so today's episode, it's the big one, the one you've all been waiting for, or at least the one I wait for every year, which is our annual market summary. Now, as always, the data we're going to review is macro data. It points at trends and shifts in the property market over the last year, as well as some attempts at projections for the current year, for 2022. And comes from a wide variety of sources, as always. The most prominent of those are PricewaterhouseCoopers and the Urban Land Institute, CBRE, uh, Jones, Lang, LaSalle, JLL, Seville's Bloomberg, and of course, from our own observations of the market throughout the year. And while macro coverage of this kind doesn't necessarily translate uh, immediately into actionable items uh, that we as smaller players in this arena can act on, it definitely paints a broad picture that I think helps everyone, us little people included, make more informed decisions moving forward. So here are some of the major takeaways from 2021 as far as Japan's real estate property market is concerned. So the first major notion to take into account, uh, the executive summary, if you will, is that the market is now very much in what we were thinking of in future terms last year, and that many of us like to call uh, the new normal. Only it's not really the future, it's simply the way things are right now, the way they have been for most of 2021. And at least as far as the eye can see, it's probably also more or less the way things will be moving forward. So if last year we were talking about hanging in there and waiting for things to blow over and for recovery to begin or for distressed assets to hit the market, um, that particular hope for um, mid-pandemic or, or pre-pandemic normality has really been in practice abandoned, at least for the time being. So if we did think for one hot minute there that things may have been trending that way and heading towards recovery uh, towards the end of 2021, well, the Omicron variant uh, came around and put that hope to rest, for now at least. So as you'll hear when we start drilling into various sectors and mind frames that are prevalent in the market now, we're really talking about how things are progressing right now in the midst of the pandemic and for the foreseeable future. 
as opposed to what we were talking about last year, which was mainly along the lines of how will things look after when we start going back to normal again. So keep this in mind as we discuss these different trends and changes in the market. These are all at least medium, if not long range strategies and projections that we're discussing. So these are not temporary measures. In some sectors, there is talk of post-pandemic strategies and so forth, but these are very much wishful thinking at this stage. So as things stand, for the immediate future at least, we're talking about strategies that work right now in the current environment, which is being taken as a given. So not a storm that's going to blow over us if we just hang in there long enough. And that obviously dictates different approaches, as you'll hear about in a moment. And when we do talk about shifting behaviors, whether they're work or lifestyle related, location centric, investment oriented, what have you, Japan and the rest of the Asia Pacific region uh, are in many ways similar to the Western world. But due to many factors, the intensity and the character of these trends can and does differ from other countries and in particular from Western countries. Now, speaking of Japan and other countries, the perception of Japan as a safe haven in times of global crisis holds true. And that's one of the first important trends that we've seen in the market. So this was the case back in the global financial crisis period of uh, 2008 and the years that followed afterwards. And it's very much the case now as well. So much so, in fact, that Tokyo is actually at the top of the table in uh, PwC's annual survey of investment prospect rankings for 2022. So the city took over from Singapore, who was leading the charts in the two years prior. And that's really due to uh, enduring stability. So we've spoken about this time and time again here on the podcast, whenever we've discussed COVID and the effects of COVID on the market here, the fact that Japan's government and economy are both considered to be extremely stable and reliable, even if not particularly growth oriented, this trend always draws investors here when there's calamity anywhere else in the world. And Tokyo, which similarly is a bastion of reliable and stable income, even if that income is much, much lower uh, percentage wise than many other investment locations, is usually the primary beneficiary of this safe haven uh, mindset, particularly when we're dealing with institutional investors and they have access to Japan's notoriously low interest rate leverage. So they're normally comparing yields with other safe and stable investment vehicles like sovereign bonds. So when they're comparing the one or 2% that these bonds might gain for these investors uh, with the two or 3% that prime Tokyo real estate might yield, and they're factoring in extremely low borrowing costs, it's really a no brainer for them. And they have been voting with their dollars and their yen. So a large gamut of global entities have either set up Japan property funds this year, or they've declared their intention to do so in 2022. And the percentage of investment by large institutional investors, whether domestic or foreign, has actually increased in 2021. So even though the country's total deal volume has decreased by about 20% overall, Japanese real estate investment trusts, institutional funds, sovereign funds, uh, Japanese real estate investment uh, trusts, JREITs, have all been among these investors who have been very active in the market and they've been active all throughout the year. So buying, selling, paying out healthy dividends in almost all sectors. Now, all of this activity has served to maintain prices all around the country. So there have been some slight declines in prices in most cities, but nothing beyond one or 2% at most. And this is also due to the fact that the distressed property pool that everyone was talking about at the start of last year never actually materialized, or at least didn't materialize to any significant degree. 
So there seems to be an unspoken agreement between lenders and government here in Japan that a wave of mortgage defaults would really not be the best thing for the economy, and that's probably right. And so the lenders haven't really taken any serious action and haven't really called on any non-performing loans. And that in turn has obviously helped to avoid any serious distressed sales and, and property price crashes in most cases. So if we're not seeing any price drops, what kind of trends are we seeing in the market? Well, first and foremost, there's of course the shift away from the central business district, from the CBD. Now this trend isn't nearly as prevalent in Asia as it is in Western countries, and that's due to a bunch of factors, mainly different perceptions of the work-life balance here and the much more entrenched tendency for big city life. And in Japan specifically, there's also the huge reliance on paper, which is still very much a big thing here. So from hard copies of every conceivable document to faxes to hanko, like those personal and corporate stamps and seals, all of these factors dictate a far higher need for personal attendance in offices. Now, regardless, there is definitely a shift here as well. So companies have been adopting work from home models to various degrees, and they have been shifting to some sort of hybrid home slash office working regime whenever possible. And that's had an effect both on deal volumes in various locations and also on the popularity of various property profiles. So if you look at where most of the deals are happening, for instance, we can see that Tokyo and Nagoya have remained fairly stable. So transaction volumes are down 8% in Tokyo. They're up 8% in Nagoya. Um, but Osaka and Yokohama, for example, are down 29% and 33% respectively. Now in Chiba though, which is about an hour away from Tokyo, transaction volumes are up 34%. And in Saitama, which is only 30 minutes away from Tokyo, they're up a whooping 68% in 2021. Now you add to that the fact that central Tokyo population numbers are also down about 1%, not huge, but happening. And that the vast majority of those who are leaving the capital are young families. So it's becoming quite clear that those who can are definitely moving out of the city. Now, as a derivative of that, and because many companies have chosen to set up more suburban and smaller offices, as opposed to continuing expanding their headquarters presence in the CBD, and simply because they want to cater to staffers who are working from home half of the week or more, and they prefer to commute less and be closer to home, and obviously the companies don't wanna lose those staffers. So now there's more of a focus on smaller, higher grade offices in the suburbs or small towns around the large metropolitan centers, as opposed to those huge central offices in the city center, uh, which may be located in older, less attractive and less modern buildings. We interrupt this broadcast, I always wanted to say this, we interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. 
They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens. And they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy. Fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S, at tokyorealty.jp. One of the biggest case studies of this trend is Dentsu, Japan's biggest advertising company. And in 2021, they've registered Japan's largest property transaction historically for about 2.6 billion US dollars. And they sold and then leased back their company headquarters building in central Tokyo. Again, due to the fact that less and less office staff was actually working from the main office. Now, additionally, and this is a trend that we already started seeing in late 2020, when people work from home and when more family members are staying home for longer periods of time, there's obviously a growing demand for larger space in the home to accommodate a home office, larger living areas, and this naturally is much easier and cheaper to source out of the CBD. But all of that, again, while it did create a higher demand for more suburban or out-of-city property, that hasn't done much to dampen prices. So even though office vacancies are increasing and commercial rents are decreasing in almost all major cities, some of them also residential rents, uh, Fukuoka City, by the way, is one of the exceptions. Prices here have actually gone up slightly in 2021, uh, probably because the city is already well established as a highly desirable location for families to relocate to. But prices have held firm. In spite of these drops, prices have held firm in most other cities. In fact, newly built central Tokyo condo units are now projected to be uh, topping the pre-1990s bubble era prices. Highest prices we've seen for Tokyo new condos in about 30 years. And this is mainly because, again, Japan and particularly Tokyo are considered a safe bet in times of crisis. So investors who are interested in safe and stable income, even if it's lower uh, than what it used to be, are still very much interested in this market. So if you think about it, in pre-pandemic days, the main driver for investors who are looking overseas was to try and maximize yields. These days, the focus is much more on safe and stable cash flow. So tenants don't tend to make drastic changes in times of crisis, which means that they avoid moving around as much as they can, which in turn means that vacancies can take a lot longer to fill. So they don't happen as often. People stay put if they can, but when they do move out, it'll be a lot harder to get a tenant. The vacancy could be a lot longer. 
And that works for both commercial and residential properties. Now, specifically, too, when it comes to residential properties, and because, again, there aren't really any massive layoffs in Japan and people are not really being evicted from their homes uh, as much uh, as in other countries as a general rule. So the residential sector is, again, seen as an even safer bet within the safe haven that is Japan. So businesses can obviously go out of business, relocate, downsize, etc., whereas residential tenants tend to stay put if they can. So for that reason, residential assets now compound a total of 36% of all real estate investments in the market, up from 20% in 2020. And even more interesting is the fact that 60% of this investment volume actually comes from foreign investors. So again, safe haven mentality, Japan is it. Okay, so we know where the residential and the office market is standing, but what about the other sectors? So one of the biggest surprises here is actually the retail sector. So if you'll recall from the last few annual summaries we've done here on the podcast, retail was already suffering far before the pandemic hit uh, due to the constant increase in e-commerce and online shopping. And this actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise when the pandemic hit. First off, because prices were already trending down, have, have actually reached a point where in many places those properties actually became attractive again for investors. Add to that the fact that Japan's policies on lockdowns and shutdowns are a lot softer than they are in other countries. So there have been ebbs and flows, of course, but generally speaking, shops remained open. And the lack of international tourists didn't really hurt the retail market that much, considering that 99% of their foot traffic was domestic to begin with. In fact, with the borders closed, luxury shoppers, so the wealthy in Japan, couldn't go overseas uh, on overseas shopping trips and they had to spend their money at home. Now, even more importantly, retail spaces, again, because of the e-commerce uh, pinch that they were suffering from, were already reinventing themselves for the past few years. So if you look at the top floors of shopping centers, for example, they were already shifting from you know, a restaurant consumer goods focus and towards um, stuff like food supply stores, supermarkets, office goods, home goods, studios, workspaces, libraries, schools, clinics, and even last mile logistics facilities like shipping centers, warehouses, retirement facilities. You'll see a lot more of those in the top floors of shopping centers these days. And this kind of shift really helped in repositioning the retail sector in a far more recession or pandemic resistant place. So contrary to expectations, that particular market sector is actually doing quite well. The same cannot be said, of course, for the hospitality sector. So hotels were the hardest hit real estate market segment, not just in Japan, but everywhere. And in Japan specifically, the international tourism rush that was leading up to 2019, when the country recorded a historical record number of just under 32 million annual visitors or so, that obviously led to a huge hotel development boom, which all materialized at the worst possible timing as soon as the pandemic hit. So in this particular sector, we have seen some distressed sales, although not nearly as many as we assumed we'd see. Um, but investors interestingly remain optimistic. And the fact that there are quality distressed assets available for purchase in the market has actually led to the establishment of quite a few domestic and foreign funds that specialize in buying and repositioning hospitality properties in Japan. Now, these investors focus mainly on luxury hotels and resorts. And that's mainly due to the fact that Japan is widely believed to have far too many budget and business hotels in all major cities. 
and the general strategies that these investors adopt seem to be either to buy cheap and then ride out the storm to recovery, whenever that may be, or to repurpose those assets into residential or commercial assets if possible. This isn't always possible, of course, so it's very much a case-by-case -case and deal-by-deal -deal approach, but still the market is very, very active. Now, the government on their side have also tried their best to keep the sector afloat. So they've announced a number of initiatives like the go-to-travel campaign, which encouraged domestic tourism. They still do to an extent, depending on infection numbers, they go up and down with those. So while many of the hotels do stand empty or largely empty, there is some life in the sector and definitely plenty of hope for the future when the borders will open. Although again, when that will happen is anyone's guess at this point. So what else? We've got the alternative assets market with its two biggest stars, so logistics and specialized logistics. So shipping and warehouse facilities, packaging centers and so forth. And then on the more specialized end of the sector, we've got cold storage facilities, data centers, etc. Now here, while the market is increasingly hot, and that's been the case for the last four or five years, we're now reached a point where yields are uncomfortably compressed and supply is uncomfortably low. And that, of course, is a virtuous cycle. It creates a cutthroat competitive market. Prices keep going up, yields keep compressing to the point where many investors are simply not really interested in playing this field anymore. Still, yields are higher in this sector than they are in other countries, particularly in Europe. And they're also higher than in the office sector here within Japan. So there's still plenty of interest in the logistics sector. On the data center and cold storage front though, those are projects that carry very unique risks and require a very unique specialty to operate profitably. So the major players here tend to be institutional investors, again, with very deep pockets or alternatively smaller investors who can partner with specialized operators like telcos, IT companies, and so forth. So the bigger investors tend to hire specialized staff and set up specialized departments to handle these projects. Smaller investors tend to partner with specialized operators. But for the vast majority of investors who are not interested in starting to study and specialize in this space, the logistics sector does tend to remain largely out of reach. So yeah, very interesting year, some very interesting trends in all segments of the market here, but for better and worse, no significant downturn and definitely no market crash. Japan is very much still a focal point for capital allocations, both domestically and internationally. And as long as the pandemic is here to stay, at least, the, the market does continue to draw attention and does generate yields for investors. And even if those yields are not nearly as high as they used to be, they're at least safe, stable, and reliable. And for most investors these days, this is really all that they could ask for, considering the uncertain atmosphere we're at at the moment globally. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company, and you've got any sort of business or visa related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. 
and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.